Uh, we're going to read from John's Gospel, please. And there you are. You'll find that um, John chapter 3 and verse 22 to 36. And this is part of our series that we are pursuing together. And here, under the heading, John the Baptist's Testimony about Jesus. How to give your testimony. How to talk about Jesus. This is uh, quite a fascinating uh, passage here. So, uh, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew, or as literally certain Jewish disciples over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, quote, unquote, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. To introduce you to John, whose uh, sort of nickname was John the Baptist. And uh, when I was preparing uh, this, I, um, I was reminded of an experience I had. I was the chaplain to the boys' brigade in Romford, and I was attending a camp. And uh, how, I don't know how many of you are, you young folk perhaps, but maybe some more mature uh, among us, uh, will remember those awful jokes, knock, knock, who's there? Do you, do you, you can recall some of them? Yes. Good. Well, 
it was a very warm day, and I was the chaplain um, of the boys' brigade. And one of the leaders came up to me, and his friend slightly to the side, and said, knock, knock. And of course, I said, who's there? He said, John. I said, John who? And he stepped aside, and his friend went through a bucket of water over me. That is true. You wouldn't do that today, I'm sure, you young folk. And I've never forgotten that. (laughs) They were silly jokes, but when I was preparing this, I had a flashback to the young people and how challenging they can be. So here we have John, and if you said, knock, knock, who's there? John, John, John the Baptist. Here is a prophet who lost his following and rejoiced in doing so. Moreover, was imprisoned wrongly and was beheaded for doing and saying what was right. That's a big ask, isn't it? And perhaps a calling that we wouldn't want. A prophet who lost his following, a preacher who lost his congregation. Well, that's John. One of the things, even superficially, if we know anything about him at all, is that he comes into uh, the scene um, as somebody who is exceptionally unconventional. Uh, If you just uh, turn back to Matthew chapter 3, just to uh, have a little picture of him. I don't know if you were to use your imagination. How do you see him? I used to picture him like Tarzan. That was the only the best way um, that I could. And he's got this appearance of being um, rugged and um, the bare essentials. And see, here he is in John chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt round his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. Follow that. Uh, So he's unconventional in lifestyle. You say, no, thank you. But he's also uncompromising, abrasive in speech. He seems to be above all public opinion. And so you keep on reading in, John, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 5. People went out to him from Jerusalem and Judea and the whole region of, of the Jordan, confessing their sins and were baptized by him in the, river, in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, potential church members, I guess, coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers. That's not very nice, is it? Very religious people. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say of yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, and so on and so forth. Uh, He's massively um, uncompromising, in your face. 
he wouldn't understand political correctness or agree with it. So there you have him. He's unconventional in, in lifestyle. He's uncompromising in speech. And what's interesting is this, that Jesus called him to be the forerunner, to prepare the way. And it is surprising to me sometimes, you know, the, the sort of people whom Jesus calls today to be the forerunner, to prepare the way through maybe a friendship or a colleague or somebody in our family. And that part of our role is to prepare the way. If you like, lay a, a relationship of credibility or friendship. People walk over it and have an encounter with the Lord Jesus. We are like John. And if we are unconventional or if we are uncompromising, let's be ourselves, but be people whom even we with all of our limitations and weaknesses, can be the people whom the Lord Jesus can use as those who prepare the way, prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. In many ways, this austere, eccentric enigma is chosen as the forerunner. No spin doctors here. No campaign manager. Just somebody who speaks the truth, and perhaps not always in love. There are three things that we can comment on, on here. Three primary tasks. And if they were true for John, they can also be true for us. Think about them. The first is this. You see that John is called to clear the way. Uh, let's come back to uh, uh, John's Gospel and we'll make reference in a moment. To clear the way. In other words, there are times when before we can do anything constructively, we have to remove the obstacles. It's this time of the year, fellow gardeners, where you need now to start digging, taking up uh, the dead um, growth from the previous year and start um, pulling up the weeds and letting it lie fallow for the winter. It's to clear the way because you have the next harvest in mind. Or change the analogy if you've had a building extension or you've seen a building site, then for sure you just have to clear the ground. To have obstacles in the way is to impede progress and cause danger. And in a way, we need to be those who remove obstacles, not put obstacles in people's ways. And particularly those of prejudice. And especially people who have... Uh, prejudging tendencies about who is this Jesus, as we read uh, here in this chapter. That's the first thing, to, to clear the way. It's hard work. The second thing that we have to do is to prepare the way. If, if anybody is going to be um, a preacher or a teacher, there are three keys. Preparation, preparation, preparation. It's always the unseen. Always the unseen that is always important. And so, here is a ministry largely unseen. And he is to prepare the way. He is to preach repentance. The ministry of preparation is vital. Think for a moment, those of you who have done exams recently. Okay. 
go into the examination and say, I'm going in, fingers crossed. I don't think you're going to get very far. The key to it is you've done your prep. And it's unseen. It's just hard work. And it's a slog. The ministry of preparation is vital. And John has to face the criticisms of being negative. When people sometimes, perhaps legitimately or otherwise, say, don't be negative, is to prepare the way. And then the third is, and this is so important in the progression here that we learn from John, is to get out of the way. Get out of the way. Don't impede the progress. Step aside. Let Jesus take center stage. Do, do you, none of us are perfect, we know that. But, and we shouldn't beat ourselves up, but surely there are times when we should do our best to get out of the way so that the Lord Jesus can come into people's lives. Get out of the way, step aside, let Jesus take over. And as John introduces Jesus, look what he says. There you have this marvelous uh, verse, um, where is it, 30 and 31. And by the way, John really means this. This is not, uh, you know, pretending to be humble. He, he says, he, Jesus, must become greater and I must become less. That is a great motto for every believer. Everybody who has genuinely embraced Jesus Christ. I want more of him and I want less of me. And so do other people, by the way. Get out of the way. That's a great lesson that we can learn from John, who, as a consequence of being upright, is going to be imprisoned and subsequently beheaded. It's a tough world. It's a tough world. But you see, in a sense... Yes, we're talking about John, but we're, I hope, and in a sermon, you make that transition, don't you? Um, we think about ourselves. Um, these three primary tasks are true for all believers. Um, think about your own life now. I, I've been trying to think about mine. Um, there's, often there's, there's too much clutter. Too much clutter. Uh, last week, last Saturday, we had a big work party. Thirty of us. And we filled Ken Tome's truck twice. It's a big truck. As part of our um, autumn spring clean. I couldn't help but think, you know, what about our lives? Are there things that just impede? They may not be wrong in and of themselves. But our lives are so cluttered. If uh, you've had to sort out your... Um, parents' um, home, as uh, my three brothers and I had to do recently with my father, you, you begin to ask, um, and certainly it was in his case, how he had so little clutter. So little clutter. It wasn't difficult to um, sort it out. And maybe we should be like that. Our lives have just got too much. Not wrong in and of itself, but we just don't have time. Or perhaps we could learn from John also that uh, we do too little prep. 
prayerful preparation or thoughtful say I am not going to get embroiled in that quarrelsome relationship I'm just not and I'm going to prepare my mind for this and I'm going to break old habits that have dogged me all my life or too much of self it's like as if here need to get out of the way and let Jesus do his own work I mean, he can do it without us. But he chooses to do it with us and through us. Too much self. Well, that's the application of the sermon. It's really quite, quite simple, isn't it? And yet, its impact is, is enormous. So, very quickly, let's look at these verses 25 to 26. And just to see the context here, yes, it's um, uh, quite, quite interesting. Uh, just so that you see what all this, uh, where all this is leading. At verse 25, an argument developed between John and his disciples. Arguments still develop about baptism and initiation and all that sort of thing. Um, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing. And he's taking people from us. And we're losing the momentum. So this verbal Argument. It's actually a sustained confrontation. Even today, not so long ago, there was a book written called Where the Waters Divide. Even among evangelicals who um, wanted to debate and so on and so on. It's not wrong to do that. And John is losing his following. And he's losing it to this fledgling preacher, Jesus. Yes, you are. And John's response incorporates here four convictions that should be true of all of us. And you have this in verses 27 to 30. These four convictions uh, we can just uh, comment on um, uh, quite quickly. First of all, um, in verse 27, John replied, A man, a woman, a believer, can only, a man can receive only what is given from heaven. God is in charge and not man. I was telling Michael White this past week about um, a, a, a good preacher who preached. An even better sermon, and the lady at the door thanked him. And uh, he was rather self-deprecating and said, oh, no, no, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. And she said, it wasn't that good. Now, <laughs> you know what I mean? Sometimes with some people, you just, you know, people are like that. Some of us are here, but don't. You see, it's, it's, it's about God and uh, not about us. Not about us. And may maybe if that comment would humble the preachers, well, all to the good. But we're not easy to relate to sometimes, are we? So that's the first thing in verse 2. God is in charge, not man. It's him. And it's his work. And secondly, all of Christian work, all of our involvement and we have feet of clay and we're not perfect, is significant. But only one is preeminent. 
You see in verse, verse, look at verse 28. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. There's the greater and the lesser. The greater, he is the Christ. The lesser, I'm sent ahead of him. And thirdly, think about this as it impinges on our Christian lives. And I'm not sure how much we would take this on board, but I... Well, yeah, let me say it and I believe it. Joy comes from obedience. Joy comes from obedience, not from getting the glory. Look at verse 29, and this is an interesting illustration. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. That's fair enough. The friend, can I just interpret that for the purpose and it'll help? If I was to say, the best man, Okay, there in verse 29. The best man who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. That joy is mine and is now complete. One of the things that now I almost always say, even at Christian weddings, is this. When you meet the couple and you're doing the the rehearsal and so on, and you meet the best man. I shake hands with him and say, so you're going to be the best man? Yes. Would you do me one favor? And he says, oh, you certainly. Don't be the worst man, I say to him. And he says, what do you mean? I said, I've heard so much smut and, and, and so much innuendo that it really is not helpful. And it's an interesting restrainer on some things that people seem to want to say to embarrass parents and be incredibly inappropriate. Be the best man. Be the man who's helpful. Be the one who's got a healthy sense of humor, who wants this day to be a real memorable day for the best reason, not for the worse. John is the best man. Now, I want, to, I want to quote to you from, from the commentary because this is so helpful and it's said much better than, than I could. According to Jewish tradition, the friend was a sort of a liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. You got that? So here's the, the link man, if you like. And he would arrange uh, the details of the wedding, such as sending out the invitations, making the announcements, Preparing the marriage feast, which has the potential to go on for a couple of days. It says, no, this is a big deal. His special duty, however, was to guard the bridal chamber. The bride and the groom's bedroom. Let me read on. He would let no one into the chamber except the bride, who secretly sl slipped away from the celebrations of the crowd to join the groom. Sometime later, after the union was consummated, after they slept together, the groom came out and announced the fact with a shout. You can't help but feel how embarrassed they would be, but in that culture, it seemed to be the way they did it. Upon hearing the groom's voice, the friend, the best man of the bridegroom, would be happy. 
He would feel now his job is done. He would feel a sense of joy that was complete. And he could now, very importantly, the last task, step aside and let them get on with their married life. Now, can you imagine if the best man thinks that he should go on their honeymoon? I mean, how absurd is that? But sometimes we get our wires crossed about some of these things, don't we? What about us with that analogy that John is using? It's a very powerful one. Can Jesus have center stage? Is it really about him or is it actually about me? My feelings, my hurts, all about me. Can we put the spotlight on him and not on ourselves? In other words, we can do that and it will be easy, almost unconsciously, if Jesus is first in my life. But if he's a close second, then I'm going to be always in conflict and tension. Do you see that? Joy comes from obedience, not from getting the glory. And lastly, as we conclude, humility points to Christ and not to self. It points to him. It's a very wonderful thing that John, I'm I'm sure that he meant this. He must become greater and I lesser. That's how it is. That's how it is. Let me pose a question as as we try to... Uh, conclude, which we will do in a moment. How do we cope? How do we cope with envy and jealousy? These terrible twins. Jealousy and envy are often used interchangeably. But there is a difference. And I want you just to see the slight difference and think about it as we conclude. Let me put it like this. Envy begins with empty hands, empty hands. Mourning and grieving for what it doesn't have. If you like, envy is using intersperse sometimes, if only. And you could fill in the rest of the sentence. That's what envy is like. Whereas jealousy is not quite the same. For the purpose of the illustration, it begins with full hands. Full hands. But is threatened by the loss of its plenty. It's got full hands, but wants to keep that. And it is the pain of losing what I have, especially to somebody else, and especially to somebody else whom I don't like, can stir up jealousy. That would be so easy for John. He's going to be eclipsed entirely. And he's going to, his character is going to be assassinated. He's going to be imprisoned by a weak leader who comes to listen to him and yet at the same time, through a very seductive dance, and too much alcohol, promises what he can't keep, and as a consequence, John loses his head. 
Life is very unfair sometimes. Humility points to Christ and not to self. And coping with envy and jealousy, even in a Christian context, can be quite a challenge. I think then, and uh, verse 29, this is, a, if you like, a defining moment. The bride comes, sorry, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. Remember the illustration? The friend, the best man who attends the bridegroom, waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. And his joy is complete because of what he's done for the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the bridegroom. John is the best man. Jesus is the greatest. John is the least. And within that, he finds his fulfillment. And so verse 30, if verse 29 is a defining moment, then surely verse 30 is, is, a, is that declaring moment, a declaration of intent, of utter conviction. Nobody could gainsay that in life or in death. This Jesus is preeminent. He's everything. And I'm nothing without him, apart from him. Is Jesus really the first? We sing sometimes, oh, you're, you're, you're the best. You're my joy, you're the best. And I love you. But we can so easily live out in a different scenario. May our lives center on the preeminence of the Lord Jesus. First place, he is truly, truly worthy.